All right, are we on? Ooh, we're on. That's a hot mic. All right, let's do this thing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Uh, as always, you can, uh, you can judge the preparedness of the speaker by the length of the so-called seven-minute schmooze. So uh, that, that tells you how, uh, how well-prepared I am for today's sermon. We'll see how it goes, all right? Um, uh, first of all, I would like to share with you a testimony about uh, Daryl Godinez, whose uh, celebration of life took place yesterday. Um, so uh, part, of, part of that celebration of life was just uh, a time for testimonies from those, those of us who knew him. And uh, it, was, it was really interesting how... Let's see, how do I want to say this? It was interesting how... Um, you know, I'm, I'm here as a witness to you that people didn't collude, people didn't get together and say, hey, let's say this nice thing about Daryl, right? That, that didn't happen. But it is fair to say that everyone who spoke spoke with one voice on the, the fact that um, our beloved brother, Daryl, was, uh, was a servant. He was a servant to this community, Right? I mean, he was a servant to the community he'd previously been in. Some of the testimonies were from people from Tennessee. Right? I don't know these people from Adam. But, you know, it, if we had gotten together and cooked up a story amongst us, we couldn't have done better in saying the exact same thing about this wonderful man who was, until his, I think, untimely death, uh, a, a valued member of this, uh, of this synagogue, Physically, he is, of course, a valued, he is continuing to be a valued member of our master's kingdom. Amen? Amen. So uh, I would like to publicly praise Daryl, uh, not only because he had a servant's heart, which he most certainly did, he also had a servant's liver and two of servant's kidneys because he, uh, he was an organ donor and he, um, he literally gave the gift of life. With, uh, with the, as the last thing that he did physically on earth. So in, in everything, he and his family were, uh, were servants to this synagogue, to the kingdom, and to the, the broader spectrum of humanity. So uh, will you please join me in a few moments of silence for our brother Daryl. And please join me in prayer. Lord God, King of the universe, we love you. Uh, we love and we miss our, our brother, Daryl, who is, who is now with you and who we will see again at the resurrection of the just. Thank you, Lord, for blessing every one of us. You, you love us and you take good care of us. You provide for all of our physical needs. Lord, um, I, I ask that you would send rain on this land. Lord, I'm from Montana, and I'm even going to ask that if you want to send snow, we'll take snow. So that shows how much we need the moisture, Lord. Uh, the, this, this land, this creation of yours needs your providence, and we acknowledge that everything we have comes from you. Um, so will you please bless this land with rain? Lord, will you please... Uh, 
bless, uh, bless our leaders as, as always, Lord. Our leaders could use a touch of, of wisdom from you. And uh, Lord, would you bless today, the, uh, everyone here, Lord, would you pour your spirit upon us. Uh, we love you and we thank you for being here among us. And we ask these things in the name of your son, our master, Yeshua. Amen. So, welcome. Glad you guys are here. A lot of people are here. Wow. I need to up my game. No problem. Uh, today, um, uh, normally uh, uh, Philip would be here continuing his, uh, his series on the, the joy of the Lord, right? But um, let's see what time is it. Yeah, I'll... I'll make sure we spend plenty of time relishing the joy of the Lord together, right? Um, today, uh, I'd just like to preach on, I'd like to preach on the, uh, the Torah passage, right? The passage from the prophet, the prophet Isaiah in this case, and then finally the, um, the uh, passage from the New Covenant writings, the Greek writings. So um, I'm just going to jump right in. So today's passage is, uh, today's Torah passage is from Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. So you're welcome to uh, start there with me, if you would. Um, if we were reading from a Torah scroll, I would draw your attention to two words. First, I'd draw your attention to the word yirat. Yirat is the Hebrew word for fear, right? It's a noun. And then I would also draw your attention to the word Yirau, which is a verb form of that, it means they feared, right? So it's a, you know, past tense, third person, plural. If you didn't get enough grammar in your week, right? We'll make sure that you get taken care of here on Shabbat. I gotcha. So I want to talk today about the fear of God. The title for today's sermon is Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid. And... Um, when uh, one of our bat mitzvah students was, uh, was asking, oh, what, what's the title of your sermon going to be? And I, I said, well, it's going to be Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid. And she said, oh, I, I thought it should be Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid of Your Mother. All right? So, uh, so that, that, my friends, is Eshet Chayil, right? We are raising the next generation if, if they know how to properly respect their elders, as, as hopefully they should. So... Uh, Let's talk about the fear of God today. So please open with me to the book of Genesis. We'll get started in Genesis, where everything started anyways. It makes sense. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man. You have taken a woman uh, excuse me, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did, she not, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, have I done this? And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you 
and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you done in view that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do to me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. And thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. And then they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. A few things I'd like you to notice about this passage. First of all, right, note that, take a look at verse 6, right? God said to him in a dream, right? So Abimelech has defended himself, right? God comes to him and says, you've taken another man's wife, right? God comes to him and accuses him of wrongdoing. Right? Abimelech has defended himself, saying, I, I didn't know that this was anyone's wife. All she said is she was his sister. Right? And God said to him in a dream, this is verse 6, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against Sarah and Abraham. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. It says, I withheld you from sinning against me. Right? Another thing I'd like you to notice is... Right? Why is, why is Father Abraham doing this? this? This does seem to be strange behavior. Certainly to our modern ears it seems strange, but it's, it's going to be strange anywhere. Right? Why is he doing this? What does he say? He explains why he did this. Right? So if you look, do you, I think it's in verse 11. Right? Abraham said, because I thought... Surely the fear of God is not in this place, right? So our father Abraham expected bad behavior, right? He expected that his life was going to be in danger, right? He thought that people were going to see his wife. It said, the scripture elsewhere says that Sarah was very beautiful, right? And they were going to try to kill him so they could get to his wife, right? Now, this is a great heinous sin, right? This is a sin that's been talked about various other places, right? David. The king of Israel killed a man so he could have his wife. Right? We know that. Right? And this has certainly happened in the, in the long, sad annals of human history. Right? You can get Hamlet up here to ponder that for a little while if you'd like to. Right? This happens. Right? Now, Father Abraham understood why it was going to happen. Why was it going to happen? Because there was no fear of God. Or at least that's what he thought. Now, clearly, there was fear of God. Right? These, these people knew Abimelech, possibly a, a Philistine. I'm, I'm not sure who he was. I haven't studied that. But 
You know, just, just because these people were different than Father Abraham, they obviously still had the fear of God in them, right? The scriptures tell us that when Abimelech told his dream to his servants, you know, told them what had happened, you know, the scriptures say, if, if you read in this translation, it says they were very afraid, right? What's the verb there? Were. No helping verbs or helping verbs are very uncommon in Semitic languages, right? From which this text is originally based. So what that literally says there is they feared, right? So it, it wasn't that they were afraid. We're not talking about their emotional state. They feared. That was their action upon hearing this. So the fear of God was in this place, right? So one of the points that I'm trying to make here is that moral behavior, right? Behavior that we all know is moral. We all know that it's immoral to attack the marriage covenant. It's immoral to attack the marriage covenant from the inside by cheating or infidelity. We know it's immoral to attack the marriage covenant from the outside, right? By trying to kill a man to take his wife, right? This is, this is not something that you have to pick up this book and open it up and find, oh, yeah, okay, sola scriptura, right? Okay, there it says where I'm not supposed to murder a man and steal his wife, right? We all know this. This is part of the moral law that is written on our hearts, right? If you find someone in the, the dark jungles of Papua New Guinea who might have never heard of this book and who might have never heard of the revelation that God gave to Moses and to the prophets and finally the revelation of his son to us in these latter days, those people know that it's immoral to murder a man and steal his wife, right? And they know that because of the fear of God. All right, so our half Torah portion for today is from the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu. So if you please turn to Isaiah 61. This is one of my favorites. Isaiah 61. You'll recognize this. Right? When, uh, when our master had uh, gone out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan... Right? And he passed the test successfully. Right? He came back, and this is the first thing he read upon entering the synagogue. So I think you'll enjoy. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Adonai and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Adonai, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers, shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named priests of Adonai. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have double honor, and instead of confusion, they will rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. 
I will direct their work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants will be known amongst the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in Adonai. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its bud and as the garden causes the things that are sown in to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations." First of all, is it any surprise whatsoever that our master read that passage? I think not. Right. Second of all, right, we, we, just, we have to talk about Jesus when we read this passage. Right? We, can't, we can't skip over this. I know there's other stuff I want to talk about. Be patient. We got enough time, Philip? Yeah, plenty of time. All right, remember, when our master read this, right, this is recorded in Luke, Right? Luke records our master reading this passage, but our master did not. Right? He, he read the whole thing, that, the starting portion, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But the same verse continues in the day of vengeance of our God. Right? It is not recorded in Luke that he read that part. Right? Now it's very clear, right? because when, at the time that he was reading, it wasn't the, the day of vengeance. The day of vengeance has not yet come. And every one of us, right, who knows that we've done things wrong, who knows that either we will have to bear that vengeance in the day of vengeance or be forgiven for the things that we've done, we should all be glad that the day of vengeance has not yet come either because there's still time to tell others about our master. Right. Anyways, back on topic. Right. I want you to take a look at verse 8 with me, please. Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. That's what he loves, right? God loves justice, right? Justice is not something, right? You will, you will hear, hear so-called skeptics who are skeptical of everything except their skepticism. You will hear them ask you, you know, I, I, I really... Sure, if you can fill up this beaker, you know, if you can fill up this bottle with 30 milliliters of God, then I'll see and I'll believe, right? Well, you can't fill this bottle with 30 milliliters of justice, right? That's not how it works, right? Justice is part of God's nature, right? And yes, right, for those of you who are children of the 80s like I am, Madonna was wrong. We are not just living in a material world. We are living in a material and an immaterial world, right? And part of the immaterial realities of this world are things like justice, and they spring directly from the nature of God, as it is written, for I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery, and I will direct their work in truth and make with them an everlasting covenant, right? It is God's nature that determines justice. It is God's nature that determines right and wrong. And as we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord should be upon everyone who would do things morally. Also, take a look at verse 11, again in the prophet Isaiah. Right, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. Right? This righteousness 
that the Lord is causing to spring forth, right? Notice that it doesn't say that we will cause those things, right? The prophet could have said that. We will cause those things. He didn't say that. The Lord is going to cause those things. The Lord causes righteousness. Again, it is his nature that makes things right and wrong, good and evil. That is his nature, and he is the one who is going to work to cause those things to spring forth. Now, of course, the work of his spirit, the work of the third person of the Trinity, in all of those who would believe, is going to accomplish that, and then we're going to do those things. But it is he that is causing it. He is the cause of righteousness. Galatians. Galatians 3, 15 through uh, 29. That is the, uh, the Greek portion for our, uh, for our passage today. Turn there with me if you please. Just interesting historical trivia. I believe that... Uh, so Paul's letter was to the Galatians. These were the Galatians living in uh, what we'd call modern-day Turkey. Right, Asia Minor. There were also Galatians in Gaul living in France. Right? Now, if you remember your history, right, Caesar had conquered France, right, modern-day France, Gaul. He'd conquered the Gauls. Right? And the only person to successfully fight a battle against Caesar was a man named Vercingetorix. Right? Well, Vercingetorix was Turkish. He was from these Galatians to whom Paul wrote, not the Galatians up in France, Just if you're interested. <clears throat> Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is the Messiah. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Messiah, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator did not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law, then, against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave or free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? So, a lot of things we need to talk about in this verse. Right? Uh, first of all, notice, right? notice how it finishes up. Right? I mean, this is... A lot of this is about the promises made to Abraham, so it clearly applies to the Torah passage where we want to talk about Abraham, right? Notice 
how we finished it up. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All right, so the promises made to Abraham apply to every man, woman, and child in this synagogue who would believe in Abraham's God. All right, so put away your stupid little worries about, I need to find a Jewish ancestor so I can go to a, a synagogue. All right, Silliness. Waste of time. Right? If, if you believe in Abraham's Messiah, because he said that Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day, right? then you are every bit as much of an heir to any promise made to Father Abraham as someone who has Jewish blood. So stop with your stupid genealogies, please. Ah, all right. So let's also have an apologetic moment about this verse, right? Some of our, uh, I believe, confused Christian brethren, oh, well, the, the, the tutor was here until Messiah came, so we don't have to follow the law anymore. All right, first of all, that's not what it says. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Don't get me started, but I'm already started. So here we go. Now, so a while ago, I was doing some cyber stalking on one of my, uh, one of the members of my thesis committee, all right, Dr. Fleck, all right? My wife knows Dr. Fleck. None of you know Dr. Fleck. Um, uh, Dr. Fleck is an amazing teacher. He is the best teacher I've ever had, right? He makes economics interesting, right? So that should tell you something. So the, there was this little Rate My Professor website, right? And of course, most people rated Dr. Fleck very highly, and there were some people who didn't, right? So I was ready to fight, right? Because Dr. Fleck was, you know, thesis advisor, right? And good personal friend, mentor, right? So I, I need to find out why these people say that, you know, Dr. Fleck is not a good teacher, right? And basically, they're saying, you know, if you read their, their comments, you know, Dr. Fleck is not a good teacher because he expects them to know calculus, right? What's well, a 300-level economics class, right? Let me welcome you to real life, you know? lines sometimes curve, right? You need calculus, so get over it. Anyways, right? The point is, if the Almighty, blessed be he, ever sees fit to give me the work ethic to get a PhD, do I then get to ignore the things that Dr. Fleck taught me? No, clearly not. The things that Dr. Fleck taught me, are they of no value? No, clearly not, they're still true. Right? So, so this idea that, you know, that, that we're no longer under the tutor, that is certainly true. Right? What was the purpose of the law? One of the purposes of the law was to convict us of sin, to tell us that we'd done wrong. Right? That doesn't, and, and that purpose of the law is still valid today. Right? Another purpose of the law was to tell people that that sin needed to be forgiven. Right? Well, the law tells you, okay, well, we're, we, we've got these, these practices that we're going to have for an atonement, for a covering of sin. Right? But then the writer of the book of Hebrews comes along and says, we know that the blood of bulls and goats does not forgive the sin of a man. And that is most obviously true. So the law was given in part for the purpose of showing people that they needed that. And then when the Messiah comes, 
And fortunately, we have the writer of the book of Hebrews to explain all this stuff to us. Just as another sidetrack, my wife and I were listening to an article on the book of Hebrews last night, and uh, it's just, the, the book of Hebrews is amazing, right? You can't study Torah without reading Hebrews, right? And the, the, the author of this article was mentioning some really interesting things that we won't go into because it'll take even more time. But... Um, Right? He, he mentioned that there are things in the book of Hebrews more important than the Christology and the typology. And right? I thought, wow, this better be pretty darn important, right? Because the Christology and the typology in the book of Hebrews are of vital importance, right? This book doesn't make any sense without it. It can't hold together, right? But with it, it, of course, holds together perfectly. So thank God for the writer of the book of Hebrews. Anyways, right? The purpose of the law, one of the purposes... One of the purposes of the law is to show people the need for forgiveness of these sins, right? And so now that we have the Messiah, now that we have the written evidence of him crucified, died, and of course gloriously resurrected, we know how our salvation has been accomplished, right? So we no longer need the tutor of the law in that sense because we can see exactly what it is. But in the same way that I'm not going to, you know, a, a, I mean, Dr. Fleck taught me about the, the law of demand, right? If the price goes down, the quantity that people want to buy goes up, right? How many of you would like to go out and buy a nice new car for $200? Anyone? Any takers? Yeah? Okay. That's the law of demand, right? Does that become untrue at a later point in time? No, of course not. In the same way the truth that has been shown through the law does not become untrue at a later point in time. Right? Rather, we understand exactly what the law was trying to teach us. In that sense, yes, we are no longer under a tutor. That doesn't mean you tell your professor that he's a moron, and that doesn't mean you forget the things he taught you. Anyways... Whose seed exactly is it, right? What, what exactly is going on here, right? You know, because, again, right, the law was pointing us towards Christ. If the law has been successful, right, then where is your life hidden? Well, let's find out. Turn with me, please, to Colossians, the city of Colossae. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? That's what the law is trying to tell us. The law is trying to tell us, right, and the law, the tutelage of the law is trying to tell us about the need for a death, right? We understand justice demands that the rebellion, the sedition, the hatred against God needs to be punished. And it is worthy of death. And the law showed us death, 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 death. And then what happened? An innocent man right, made a choice to die for his friends. And he said himself, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. Right? He made that choice. That death occurred. Right? That death 
is the death that the law was foretelling all the way up. All right. That doesn't mean we throw out the law. Right? It means we're, we no longer have to look forward in faith. We can look backward in knowledge to what's happened. Right? Morality didn't change. Right. You'll, you'll be happy to hear that God is still on his throne. Anyways, all right. So, <clears throat> those are our, uh, those are our uh, scripture readings for today. So, keep those in mind, right? I want to talk about the fear of God. I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the, the necessity of the fear of God in morality, right? So, keep, keep fear on the brain. Right? Be afraid. Be very afraid. Right? And we'll talk about it. Be afraid of the right things. So, I was, uh, I, was, I was looking for, for a good meme, right? I'm, I, I think in terms of memes, right? I love memes. If you ever want to share a good joke with me, if you ever want to really get to know me, right, start sharing a meme with me. And um, I found, you know, so I, so I Googled be afraid, right? Because I want to talk about fear. You know, a good, a just fear. And um, so uh, one of the things that popped up was an old uh, labor voting poster, a labor campaign poster. Labor is in the British Labor Party, right? Basically, you can think of the British Labor Party as um, the British version of the Democrats. And they had a picture on it of uh, Lady Margaret Thatcher, right? The the conservative, the Tory prime minister, you can think of the conservative Tory party as something like the Republicans at the time. So Lady Thatcher is basically the equivalent of President Reagan, right, to put you in a historical mindset, if, uh, except she was way tougher than President Reagan. So, um, all right, so I saw this poster and I, I really enjoyed it. It kind of got my, my juices flowing because just so you know, I am a, I'm an Anglophile, right? Had, uh, had my third child been born, uh, been born male, uh, his name would have been Thatcher Maurice. And yes, Thatcher would have been the most masculine name I could have given said son in, uh, in honor of Lady Margaret Thatcher. <clears throat> so uh, so uh, instead, my choice of names for my third child was uh, Churchill, right? You'll note the... Uh, You'll note the, 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 the common theme in these names, right? And so my wife and I compromised, and my third child is not named Churchill. Uh, so we have, a, we have a division of labor, right? We have a, we have a division of labor in my house, right? I, uh, I'm, responsible for, I'm responsible for the important things, right? I'm responsible for the George family position on minor Russian incursions into the Ukraine, right? I'm responsible for the George family position on the Oxford comma, right? And um, so I, uh, and I'm, I'm very dogmatic about, I, I strongly disagree with Weird Al Yankovic who said, you can keep your drama if you really want to leave out that Oxford comma. No, we're putting the Oxford comma in. Right, so important things are my portfolio in the George family, and unimportant things like where we live, what kind of cars we drive, right, what our monthly budget is, those things are left up to my wife. And so 
as you can see, the names of our children are uh, one of the unimportant things, apparently. <laughs> so, um, and in total honesty, none of that had any bearing on the gospel. But I just wanted to tell you my thought process when I, when I said that, you know, we, we should all be afraid. All right? It naturally went to uh, my, uh, my love of, the, of our fellow English-speaking peoples. Anyways, so if you ever want to call Madison Churchill, you, you can do so with my blessing. <clears throat> I, want to talk about the, uh, I want to talk about the fear of God, right? The fear of God, the fear of God is a good thing, it, um, and it is, it is the only thing on which we can truly ground the expectation of morality, right? There is, there are, there are many people have tried, very, very intelligent people, Right? They are intelligent people whose insistent rebellion against God has driven them in some ways insane. Right? They want to argue that you can ground morality, that morality can exist without the existence of God. Right? They're absolutely wrong. The only way that morality can really exist is with God. Right? If God doesn't exist, morality doesn't exist. Right? If God exists, if our God, if a God like our God exists, right, then morality must exist. Right? But if God doesn't exist, there's no such thing as morality. Right? So, let's talk about these. Uh, I, I want to show you from the scriptures what God says about the fear of the Lord. Right? I understand that there are all sorts of places in the scriptures where messengers, angels come from God and they say, don't be afraid. Right? They didn't say, don't fear God. Right? They said, don't be afraid because God has a message for you. Or don't be afraid because he's not going to let the Assyrians destroy you or something like that. But the fear of God, the fear of God itself is the foundation of morality. It is the foundation of decent human behavior. We cannot live without it. Excuse me, we cannot live morally without it. So, let's talk about it. Open with me, if you will, to Jeremiah, the prophet Yiramayahu. Jeremiah, chapter 32. Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 37 through 41. Right, just as a background... Jeremiah had two visions, or two, two words from the Lord, two, two separate times that he was told about the new covenant. So what we're going to be talking about here is the new covenant. Right? This was the first. The second one is the one that lays out the terms of the new covenant and from which we very clearly understand the work of the Messiah. Right? This one, Jeremiah 32, verses 37 through 41 right there behold I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger in my fury and in great wrath I will bring them back to this place I will cause them to dwell safely they shall be my people and I will be their God then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and for the good of the children after them and I will make an everlasting covenant with them I will not turn away from doing them good but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land. 
with all my heart and all my soul. So, again, what you have there is a specific promise of good, right? And what was he going to do? He mentions it twice. We're talking about the fear of the Lord. He says, what does he say? And remember, this is part of the new covenant, right? This is, how is he doing this? He's doing this through the blood of the Messiah. That's how he's doing this. And he's doing this through the work of the Spirit. That is how these things are being accomplished. So, verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Right? Forever. So the fear of the Lord is not supposed to go away anytime soon. It's forever. Right? Second, what does he say? Right? I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good. These sound like good things, right? This everlasting covenant. This is the covenant that will last forever. Right? This is the covenant that was inaugurated in our master's blood. Right? He said, take, drink from it, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood, right? His blood is what is making this covenant, and that's the covenant that we are under. He says it's covenant to do us good, right? What next, right? But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me, right? That fear of God is vital, and it is notably stated twice by the prophet, part of the new covenant. Turn with me to Job. Job. Job verse 4, excuse me, chapter 4. Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Then Eliaphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? All right, so this is one of Job's sage counselors, right, who in some ways failed him. What he's saying here, right, in verse 6, when he says, is not your reverence, your confidence, that word there is one of those Hebrew words that I told you to be on the lookout for, right? That word there is fear. Right? Is not your fear your confidence? Right? And what next? Right? And the integrity of your ways, your hope. Right? This, this counselor to Job links the integrity of his ways with the fear of God, the fear of God that should be his confidence. Right? And reverence is a, reverence is a fine translation. Right? We can, you know, I'm, I'm reading to you from the New King James Version. Right? Now, of course, all scripture is God-breathed. Not all translations are God-breathed. Right? So, I'm looking at you, nearly inspired version. Yeah, you've never heard of the NIV, the nearly inspired version? It gets close, right? So, that version, right? We're in a synagogue, so we have to, we have to care somewhat about the Hebrew language. That version that must not be named will, right, when, when Paul gets up to address the, the rabble, right, it says that he speaks to them in Hebrew, right? The Greek word there is the word for Hebrew, 
right? Luke was a good historian. Luke was widely traveled in the ancient world. It is highly likely that Luke knew the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic. And yet, that version will translate that word as Aramaic. And then they'll put in a little footnote. Well, it actually says Hebrew. Why don't I just translate it Hebrew? I mean, to make, to make it difficult on everyone? To give me a reason to call it the nearly inspired version. Why do it? Anyways. Right? So, the fear of God. Necessary for integrity. Per the book of Job. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Right? No apologetic discussion is ever complete without reading the 19th Psalm. Again, remember, right? When you're... When you're Christian friends are arguing against Torah when they say that Torah has no value. If you want to make them read this, don't be a jerk. Don't make them read it over and over again. Just two times is probably the max. If you make them read it three times, then that's, that's probably overkill. I speak as one with experience. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, and night unto night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here it comes, pay attention. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Adonai, my strength and my redeemer. Right? Now, I'm talking about the fear of the Lord, and you'll notice that it's only mentioned in one verse, but the rest of the psalm is just so good that we had to read it all. Right? It's wonderful. Right? This psalm, right, this is just a general apologetic psalm. Notice how it starts out. Right? It starts out, right? I mean, this is one of the great lines in Scripture. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the heavens do declare the glory of God. Right? There is no question that the heavens are amazing. They are awesome. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right? General revelation are the things that we can know. We can know things about God just from the things we see. Right? We don't need this book. We don't need, uh, we don't need prophets. We don't need the ultimate expression of God's will towards mankind, the ultimate word, which is, of course, his son. Right? We don't need those things to give us general revelation. General revelation is available to all of us, the human genus, general. Right? So, what things can we learn from general revelation? First of all, we can look around and see a world that is logical. Right? We can see a world in which truth exists. Right? 
if someone says to you, well, there is no truth, right? That should bother us, right? Are you sure there's no truth? Is that true? Right? If someone tells us, oh, there are no absolutes, are you sure? Absolutely. absolutely, that's right. I'm absolutely sure there are no absolutes, right? It is obvious, right? Just, you know, if, if there's something going on between your ears, it is obvious that truth exists. It is obvious that absolute truth exists, right? This is general revelation. Now, of course, specific revelation tells us who the author of this truth is, right? There, you know, we can see from general revelation that logic exists, right? We, we know, you know, the, the three laws of logic. Again, you can't fill up a bottle with them, but they exist, right? They are immaterial realities in our world, right? That is, that is obvious to anyone who would study this, right? And then our specific revelation tells us that God is not the author of confusion, right? So we understand why there is logic, right? So this psalm... This psalm starts with an appeal to general revelation, right? Now, part of general revelation is the moral law that has been written on the heart of every man, right? We don't need, again, we don't need a book to know, for instance, that murder was wrong. Cain knew that what he did to his brother Abel was wrong. This was before the giving of the Torah when the Almighty, blessed be he, wrote with the finger of his own hand, in stone, you shall not murder, Right? But Cain knew that what he'd done was wrong. Right? God didn't need to tell him that what he did was wrong. God had already written that moral law on his hearts. That's why humankind, that's one of the reasons that we are in the image of the divine, because we reflect the divine nature, part of which is the moral law. Right? So morality, again, an immaterial reality, is part of creation. Right? And also... It is true, it is true that we can't, you know, I, I can't take you over to that whiteboard back there that Zach uses for Bible study and write out a mathematical proof of, of morality, right? That is true. However, we can understand morality in the same way we understand nature, right? We understand nature through science. We understand nature through repetition, Right? We understand nature through experience. We understand nature through theory. And we can understand morality in the same way. Right? We can know that some of the things we see are inherently good. We can know that. And we can know that the violation of those good things or the deprivation of those good things is bad or is evil. Right? Some of us had the opportunity to attend the, uh, the Holocaust exhibit in Kansas City recently. Right? So you will, you will see people, you will hear them, who argue against objective morality. And to argue against objective morality, you must say various things, including that nothing that we saw there was wrong. Right? That telling, telling innocent men, women, and children that they're going to get a nice shower and deloused and then move somewhere out in the east and then hurting them into a gas chamber and murdering them. There's really nothing wrong with that. Right? That's the effect of saying that there is no morality. And that's, that's where you go when you lose the fear of God. Right? I shared, you know, again, I've told you that I, I communicate in memes. Right? I communicated a meme to uh, the two other elders of this synagogue 
And um, I was going to, uh, I was going to have it uh, posted up here, but uh, it might make people sick. Anyways, I'll describe it to you. It'll still make you sick. All right. It was a nice, wonderful plate of pasta, and this pasta was covered in Nutella. And the caption on the meme said that without objective morality, all things are permissible. All right. Now, as much as I might die a little bit on the inside saying this, there is nothing objectively morally wrong with putting Nutella on pasta. I just don't like it. All right. I know that I don't like it. I don't need to experience it to know that I don't like it. All right? In, in, in the same way that I can... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try it. <laughs> Yuck. Right? I don't need, right? I don't need just a little bit of suicide to be able to make moral, you know, to, to be able to say moral things about suicide. Right? And I don't need to experience any of the Holocaust to know that it was wrong. Right? To know, notice what I'm saying. Right, now we've gone, we, we've gone from an enjoyable meme, not an enjoyable dish, but an enjoyable meme right, where I subjectively, in and of myself, do not like Nutella on pasta. Right? Now, when I talk about anything, when I talk about morality, I am making a claim to objective morality. Right? Morality that you must respect I claim that you must respect it. Right? I claim that everyone must respect it. I must respect it. It is above me. It doesn't care about what I think. Right? Facts don't care about your feelings. It's been well said. Right? Right? I am claiming that there's something above me to which all of mankind is bound, to which all of mankind owes a moral duty. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It's wrong every day of the week, right? It is a sin to violate it, and it will be judged at the last day, right? That's what I'm saying about morality, right? And we can know and we can understand that, right? So, the fear and the fear of the Lord is the only reason that that is relevant, okay? Again, note, objective, subjective, I subjectively, right, it is true for me that I don't like Nutella on pasta. Good. And you? Okay, good, good, good. Right? It is objectively true that murder is wrong. I am sure, very sure. Right? The reason that it is wrong is because it violates God's nature, right? Man is made in the image of God, right? And so when we, when we ask why is something immoral, why is anything immoral, right? We must go back to the nature of God. And therefore, when we're talking about the nature of God, right, why should something be done or not done, abstained from, because of the fear of God? Let's talk more about the fear of God. Turn with me to Proverbs, please. Proverbs 9. You guys know where this is going. 
but we're going to do it anyways. Proverbs 9, verses 10 through 12. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you're wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you'll bear it alone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Uh... I can't, uh, I can't do much better, right, if you, uh, if you just Google Dennis Prager, How I Found God at Columbia, you can find um, a, a sermon on this, right? Uh, basically, uh, Mr. Prager says that, you know, he was, he was being taught just amazingly stupid things, right? And of course, he had to pay a lot of money because he was in grad school to be taught amazingly stupid things, right? And I'm... I'm happy that I'm an engineer, right? In, in my grad school, no one tries to convince me that men can become women or some nonsense like that, right? But anyways, so you can have people that are really, really smart, really intelligent, do a great job on IQ tests, and they can be absolutely stupid. And it is because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Now, again, they can, be good at, they can be good at math, they can be good at science, they can memorize all sorts of things. What, whatever, your, whatever your standard for intelligence is, sure, they can meet that standard. Whatever your standard for knowledge is, sure, they can do that. Right? But wisdom? No. It can't happen without the fear of the Lord. And this is the same fear about which we're talking today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And finally... Uh, uh, Prager recounts in his story that finally he understood why people were trying to teach him all this stupid stuff. Because there's no God, right? He, most, of his, most of his professors were avowed atheists or agnostics or whatever the case may be. And, and in any case, no one, was, no one was giving glory to God for morality, right? But without God, you can't have morality. And without God, you can't have wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's talk more about fear, right? Let's go to the Greek scriptures, right? We love, we love studying Hebrew, we love reading Hebrew, and that's great, right? But remember, 20% of this book is uh, written in Greek, right? Uh, just so you know, the Septuagint was no help on this uh, because in, in, the, in Genesis, right, where Abraham was worried about, you know, there's no fear of the Lord, the Septuagint translates that as a word that's like the reverence of God, and it's only used in two places. It's used in the Genesis passage we read, and it's used in the Job passage we read, but it's used nowhere else. It's Septuagint, worthless in this case. So those of you who like the Masoretic text did better on this one, but we still need to study the Greeks. What's that? Oh, heavens, no. Am I going to read it? The question was, am I going to read it in Greek? <laughs> no. Okay, open with me to uh, the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 24. Uh, This will be uh, verses 24 through 28. A disciple is not above his teacher, 
nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more are those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Those are the words of our master, the lover of our souls. Right? Notice that he starts by saying, don't fear. Don't fear these people. Right? But then he says, there is one, right? blessed be he, whom we should fear. Right? So, right? notice... Notice a few things here, right? I mean, he starts to say that a disciple is not above his teacher and a servant above his master. It's enough that a disciple be like his teacher. I would like to be like Jesus of Nazareth. What about you? Right? I would like to be raised perfectly. I look forward to the day right, when the corruptible puts on incorruption, when everything is as it should be. And notice... Just as a side note, notice that when our master was raised, right, his body was raised with holes in it, right? Because that is as it should be, right? He made that choice, right? And so his body was raised still with the holes in his hands, still with the holes in his side, still with the holes in his feet, right? Because it is as it should be, right? He made the choice to make everything perfect again through his sacrifice, right? I don't think we'll be raised with holes in our bodies, right? Because we weren't the ones that did that. We'll be raised with perfect bodies, no more pain, no more suffering, Amen. no more sin, and no more rebellion, right? And we will be like our master. Amen. Now, right, we live in a very morally confused age, right? That is, uh, that is most certainly true, right? So... The things that he preaches in our ear, we should be preaching on the rooftops, right? Because in the same way, if, 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 our, if our age was as confused about math as we are about morality, any one of us in here who understands that 2 plus 2 is 4 should be up on the rooftops screaming it out, right? You don't have to be a great philosopher. I'm certainly not. You don't have to even be a good person, I'm certainly not. But that God exists and that he has expectations for people, that should be preached from the rooftops. When are we going to the rooftops? Okay, that, that's kind of metaphorical language, right? Uh, I, I think it would be unsafe to be on this rooftop. This might be, uh, we might need to be tied in at least so that people don't fall off. Or maybe we could have high-stakes uh, high synagogue, right? Where you have to either stay on the roof or you fall off. And, and then that, that might add some fun to what we're doing. I don't know. Um, one other thing I want to talk about, right? About the fear of the Lord and about the nature of God driving morality. Open with me, if you will, please, to Leviticus. Leviticus 19. Right, all those, all those weird, 
all those weird laws, right? There's no such thing as a weird law. Everything that God gave us is a moral law. So those, of, those who have heard that there's various different Torah, right? You don't need to pay attention to certain parts of the Torah because it's been done away with. No, no. Everything is a moral law. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you will be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall, re- kids, are you listening? Every one of you shall revere his mother and father and keep my Sabbaths outstanding. The word there is actually fear. Right? That is that same Hebrew word, yirah. Right? Every one of you will fear and keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods, for I am the Lord your God. If you offer a sacrifice or a peace offering, you shall offer it of your own free will. It will be eaten the same day that you offer it and on the next day. But if any remains until the third day, it will be burned in the fire. If it's eaten on the third day, it is an abomination. It will not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from amongst his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you will not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor will you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You will not glean your vineyard, and you will not gather every grape from your vineyard. You shall leave them from the poor and the stranger. Why? For I am the Lord your God. Why should you take care of the poor? Why should you take care of the stranger? Because God exists. If he doesn't exist, you don't need to take care of the poor and you don't need to take care of the stranger. Right? What does it say? Every one of you shall revere, fear, his mother and father and keep my Sabbath. Why? I am Lord your God. If God doesn't exist, there's no reason to keep Sabbath. Right? In six days, God made the heavens and the earth. If that's not true, then there's no reason to keep Sabbath. And if that's not true, right, there's no reason to care about your, your father and your mother. There's no reason to care about any old person. Right? No reason to care about anyone. God tells us why this is going on. Let's continue. Let's see. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. Why? I'm the Lord. I wonder if he's trying to make a point here. Right? You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Right? You, do you want to be treated fairly by your employer? If God doesn't exist, there's no reason that, that should happen. Do you think you should be honest in your business dealings? If God doesn't exist, why? It's just money. Take all that you want. You shall not curse the deaf, nor shall you put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Why? For I am the Lord. If God doesn't exist and you see something going on wrong, guess what? It's not really wrong. So who cares? You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall surely rebuke your brother, and you will not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? For I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come over you. 
Why? None of this stuff matters if God doesn't exist. And he tells us that. He tells us why we're supposed to do these things. I'm the Lord. All right. let, let me tell you about a story about a crazy old man. All right. I, don't, I don't think he was literally crazy. He knew what he was doing. All right. I have... It, it has been rare that I have wanted to harm someone because of his behavior. All right. This man was a fellow tenant in a building in Great Falls, Montana, where I lived when I was just out of the army. And there were also some mentally handicapped people living in this building. And this man started screaming at the top of his lungs at this poor woman because she couldn't figure out how to use the dryer. Right. Well, the scriptures tell us that you will not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. Right Now, cursing the deaf and putting a stumbling block in front of the blind also includes screaming at a mentally handicapped person because she couldn't figure out how to use the dryer. Right? That's included in there. Right? You don't get to say, well, she could see and she wasn't deaf, so I get to scream at her all I like. No. Right? There's no fear of God in you if you're doing that. Now, here's my question to you. Was this man, I'm not going to mention his name, he's not here to defend himself. Was this man wrong? Is it morally wrong to scream at a mentally handicapped person because she can't figure out how to use the dryer? Yes? Okay, it is. Why is it wrong? It is wrong because that mentally handicapped person has an advocate before the father. That mentally handicapped person has an advocate before the Father, who willingly shed his blood, literally was tortured to death for her sake. He would have been happy to do it only for her sake. It is wrong because that human being might not be the smartest human being you've ever met, but she is made in the image of the divine being. She is made in the image of God. And if you put a stumbling block in front of her, if you curse the deaf, you are subject to judgment on the day of judgment. That's why it is wrong. It is wrong because God exists. He tells you why you will not do this. Let me read it again for those of you who like to hear me yammer. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. Why? Oh, because I don't like it. Because Joe George doesn't like it. No! But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. He's using the divine name there. When it says Lord, he's using the most holy name. Right? It is a direct appeal to his nature that you will be moral. It is a direct appeal to his nature that you will care about the weak and the downtrodden. And if God doesn't exist... There's absolutely nothing wrong with slaughtering 3 million or excuse me 3000 people a day because they haven't been born yet. If God doesn't exist, there's nothing wrong with marching Jews into gas chambers. Nothing wrong with it. Do you want to go there? If you don't want to go there, then you need to fear your God. So yes, this man, who was not crazy, he, was, he knew what he was doing, was wrong. 
right? In the same way that I've done things that are wrong. I have, I've, I'm not standing up here as a perfect human being. I've sinned, right? I'm sure that surprises some of you, right? And those sins, let me preach the gospel to you for a moment. Every one of you has sinned, right? And every one of you deserves judgment, now, that judgment has already been rendered, right? We read it earlier today, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you died with Christ, that judgment has already been rendered. It was rendered six hours on a Friday afternoon about 2,000 years ago, right? And it was rendered on an innocent one in our place. And when everything was done, that innocent man, who also happened to be God, said that it is finished. That debt was canceled. That debt was paid. We're done. Otherwise, you know, if you don't want that, that's okay too. He'll let you make that choice. So, the fear of God is a good thing. It is the basis for morality. It is the basis for decent behavior. It is the only basis. Right? So, what is the moral argument for the existence of God? Let's talk about it briefly. I laugh and joke that I don't care about your time, but I've gone a little bit long, so I'm going to go quickly. Right? What is the moral argument for the, exis- for the existence of God? Bar and bat mitzvah students, you want to jump in? Do you? What's the moral argument for the existence of God? There are two premises and a conclusion. Okay, if God does not exist, no objective morality exists. But objective morality does exist. Therefore, God exists. Right? Easy. Right? Two premises and a conclusion. Easy. Right? Notice that the first premise is what we call a biconditional. Right? If and only if God exists, then morality exists. If God does not exist, morality does not exist. Right? If and only if. Right? And also notice that if and only if a God like our God exists, this is not some guiding force that binds us and penetrates us and holds the universe together. All right? This is our God, a person outside of the universe, right? three persons, one being, outside of the universe, who created the universe, right? and whose nature dictates the laws of morality. Right? If and only if he exists, then morality exists. Right? If he does not exist, morality does not exist. And yet, we've sat here and we've talked about how, yeah, we're pretty sure that morality exists. Now, also, this argument is true for any morality, even if you're wrong. Right? So there's a, you, you know that I love the English-speaking peoples, and so, Right? I need to tell you a quick story about uh, Sir Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. Now, this might be an apocryphal story. I'm not sure if it's actually true. Right? Lady Astor was the first, uh, uh, the, the first female minister of parliament to take her seat in the British parliament. Right? Think of her as uh, the British version of Jeanette Rankin. Right? And if you're not from Montana, you don't know who Jeanette Rankin is anyways. So take my word for it. Right? Lady Astor would always harass Sir Winston Churchill, and he'd harass her back. She one time said that, you know, she one time told Sir Winston Churchill that, well, if I was your wife, I'd put poison in your tea. To which Sir Winston Churchill replied, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. Right? 
So there was another uh, interaction between them, right, where uh, Sir Winston supposedly asked, well, Lady Astor, you sleep with me for a million pounds, right? Think of $10 million, roughly, today's money. Would you sleep with me for $10 million? She said, oh, I, I probably would. Well, how about five pounds? Well, Mr. Churchill, I'm not a whore. To which he said, oh, we've already determined that you're a whore. Now we're just haggling over price. All right? So, if you're going to tell me that anything is wrong, you can even be wrong about what's wrong. You can say that it is objectively morally wrong that the state does not, you know, value uh, a marriage between a man and a man, right? You, you can be wrong, but if you're telling me that that is an objective moral right, then we've already determined that you're a whore. We're just haggling over price, right? We've already determined that you are arguing for an objective moral standard, that I should be bound by. You're trying to impose your morality on me, and you would impose it on everybody. Right? It better be an objective moral standard. Right? You better not be just telling me that Nutella doesn't taste good on pasta. Right? It better be an objective moral standard that you're trying to enforce on me. So regardless of what you think of right and wrong, if you think that it exists, you're making an argument for the existence of God. And therefore, you're saying that I should respect that argument out of the fear of God. So, let me, um, let me finish up. Let's... They had, they had pasta and Nutella right behind you. Oh, I stuck for a lot. Oh, that's right. Oh. Without objective morality, everything is permitted. Mm. Mm. Ugh. So, Psalm 34. Turn with me to Psalm 34. A Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and they were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Listen, here it is. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. Young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall lack no good thing. Come, children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves those who have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Adonai delivers him from all of them. He guards all of his bones, and not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, 
and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no lack for those of you who fear him. Right? This has been a kind of a you should and you shouldn't sermon. Right? Let me finish with the gospel. Right? We, we do not love Torah because Torah saves us. Our master, Yeshua ben Yosef Minatzeret, saves us. Right? Our righteousness is not something that we do. Right? It is something that he did. Right? He gives it to us. Right? Because of that, we can then try to do good things. Right? His righteousness is infinite. He's an infinite God. And there's more than enough righteousness for everyone here. Everything you've ever done wrong, every sin, every violation of the nature of God that you've ever accomplished is easy for him to cover because of the work that he's done. Right? Again, we're not trying to earn anything. I, I'm, I'm preaching a fairly long sermon telling you about morality. We don't behave morally because it does something that saves us. We behave morally because we've been saved. We behave, we, we behave morally. We, we try to do works of Torah. We try to you know, store up righteousness for ourselves in heaven. Why? Because of the things that he's done. Right? Not because we need to do them. We're not capable of doing them. Repent and believe the good news. Um, finally, I want to end with uh, Ecclesiastes verses 12, excuse me, chapter 12, verses 9 through, uh, through the end, for, verse 14. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, I like reading that when I'm the preacher. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written that was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. This is interesting given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there's no end, and in much study, it's wearisome to the flesh. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole order of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Join me in prayer. Lord God, King of the universe, you have provided everything that we need. You have provided a world in which the, if, if a man works, he can get the things that he needs. And you've also provided a world in which if a man believes, he can have the salvation that he needs. Thank you, Lord, for the provision of our salvation through your son, our master, Yeshua ben Yosef Minatzeret. Thank you for the work that he did. Lord, we look, we, we look forward to the day that you make all things new. Until that day, Lord, would you, would you put us to work, have us busy doing the things that you want us to do. We ask these things in the name of your son, our master. Amen.